0: Live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical-meetings-quick-guide. Today, I'm with Sean Harvey, Chief Compassion Officer and Founder at Warrior Compassion Men's Studio, under the Symponia Institute of Global Compassion Healing Umbrella, based in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of the upcoming book Warrior Compassion: Unlocking the Healing Power of Men. Welcome to the show, Sean.
1: Thanks, Douglas. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, as usual, I'd love to get started by just hearing a little bit about how you got your start in this work.
1: You know, it actually started when I was 16. I had uh, just come out as a gay man, gay teenager, I guess at 15, and I knew I, I had actually a pretty easy time of it back in 1989, actually, and... A year later, I was like, there's no way to socialize besides going to bars. And so I, being the kid that I was, I reached, I found a gay activist that was in the newspaper, called him up and said, hey, I uh, I want to volunteer and I want to work with gay youth and help them to come out. <laughs> and with that, he said, well, nothing like that exists. And I said, well, I think there should. He said, well, we'll give you the resources if you want to create something. And I started something called Youth Quest as a gay and lesbian youth group for the city of Dayton, Ohio, um, at 16 and 30 something years later, it still exists now serving all of Southwest Ohio from Columbus to Cincinnati over to Indianapolis. And I say that's the starting place. Cause I think that was, you know, for the work that I do with warrior compassion, I tend to be someone who sees a need. I see the suffering. I see the, the questioning and I'm like, okay, let's just create something. So I think in a sense, I'm a social entrepreneur. And I just believe in and creating something uh, that will will meet a need to help others.
0: Wow, that's incredible! So many questions emerging. I guess for one, you know, I, we talked a bit in the pre-show chat around your work in intimacy and just the nature of how men struggle with that. And I, I wonder, with your experience and coming out at the age of sixteen, and then helping so many people come out. I mean, that's. That's a lot of work and intimacy, so I can't help but think that there's a direct connection there, too, not only in this kind of social entrepreneur space, but specifically in this experience of working and in intimacy from such a young age. Well,
1: yeah, you know, I, I think I have a very long kind of crazy journey that brought me to this work. You know, within that were my own struggles with connection, loneliness, isolation, drug addiction, sex you know, sex addiction. All these things where I was still, even if I was helping others within my own personal life, I was still struggling to create that sense of intimacy, that sense of connection. I think for a number of reasons. But I think one, just as men, so many of us have not been socialized to socialize in healthy ways. Where I talk to a lot of men now who are doing amazing things in the world. They're leading organizations, they're leading departments, they're social entrepreneurs. They're, they're, they're bringing deeply held values to humanity. And yet, when we have conversations around love, sex, dating, relationships, sort of like I see a very different person come through. And a lot of times, I think that's where a lot of our shadow is. And when I talk to a lot of folks who do personal transformation work, spiritual healers, and what have you, you know, we often say the the intimacy work, the relationship work, this is often the fine this is the later frontier of the transformation journey. Because it's really where our wounding, where our shadow, where our shame, what have you, is just packed in. And it's really in that shadow, which is really the unconscious. And, and from that place, we're often unaware or we're working on other things. And this is the 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 stuff that's that's still deep-seated, be it attachment wounds or the ways that we're we're seeking, we're yearning, we're we're, we're running into intimacy out of out of need or we're running away from intimacy. How to, you know, and, and both of them are based in fear. So it's 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 how do we move this energy from from fear into love um, to really help us become more whole, more integrated. And it really asks us to look at our truth and our own wounding in a deeper way that really I think allows us to then be more compassionate, to be more conscious, to move, be more connected with ourselves and others.
0: It reminds me of a lot of leadership development, training, et cetera, talks a lot about vulnerability, you know, and creating cultures of vulnerability. And I haven't heard a ton of framing around, you know, this intimacy and the shadow side of how men might have these things locked away in, in this way. And I wonder if, how linked do you found that to be to people's ability to be vulnerable?
1: I think uh, we're going to be as vulnerable as we're comfortable, or, or as vulnerable as we're aware. You know, to be a, to be a leader today, I think to be able to to be vulnerable, to model vulnerability, we still have to be aware of our own stories and like what are we comfortable sharing of our own stories? What are we comfortable of sharing of all parts of ourselves? And when I when I'm writing my book, one of the things that they came through loud and clear is you know it's one thing for me to be vulnerable with my employees, right? But if fear, you know, one place that I I found a lot of men expressed fear in the interviews I conducted was the fear of being vulnerable in front of other men, regardless Mm -hmm. of if it's at work or outside of the workplace. And I think that's where, as men, we still have these, you know, these challenges of competition, comparison, and insecurity. And I think within that, for many of us, we have internalized an ideal of what it means to be a man. And then we compare ourselves to our own ideal. And the ways that we don't measure up to our own ideal, that's where we can experience shame. Mm. When we see other men who have and measure up to the ideal that we have, that can create comparison and insecurity. That they're more of a man than I am. Or whatever that can bring up. I think there's a lot of nuance to explore and what it means to be vulnerable in vulnerability. But I think when we when we get to these conversations around intimacy, the way I describe intimacy is, you know, It's really having the courage, and that's what Warrior Compassion is about, is really having that energy, that courageous energy to look at yourself in a fearless way. And when you do that, it's really about being on this journey to discover the truth of who you are. And then more importantly, learn to love the truth of who you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then to be able to see others in their truth, not their masks, not their protective layers, or their constructed identity. And then to be able to create deep connection that's authentic when we look at each other in our humanity versus when we're we're connecting superficially from our masks.
0: Wow. It just reminds me of a conversation I was having with my friend Sonny Brown the other day. This article was circulating around this guy in London had created this agency, and it was totally fake. And he managed to hire a bunch of employees, and their contract stated they wouldn't get paid until the clients had paid. And So these people had been working for six months and none of them had gotten paid and it all came out and came crashing down. When we were kind of unpacking it and talking about it, she was like, this wouldn't be possible if people didn't have a sense of unworthiness. If people didn't think that like, oh, if I go here, I can prove myself. If I go work for this cool agency, I can prove myself. And it's exactly the kind of stuff you're talking about, the story around, am I good enough?
1: And I think that's where the intimacy work as well. It's, you know, the, am I good enough? And for many men, you know, because so many, many of us have been told we can't have emotions, we can't express our emotions, right? What that actually precludes us from is actually being able to access love and embody love and, and, and to really experience love in an unconditional way without expectations. I think this work ultimately of intimacy, you know, is really helping men unblock intimacy to access love in new ways. And then when we bring, when we move from living from a place of fear and insecurity and less than and, and worth worthlessness, right? And we can fill the void from this place of love, integrating ourselves where we're not seeking the love of others so we can express love for others. That's when we can create the true types of relationships that we want. But when we are operating from the void, we're going to fill that container with anything we can to not experience and feel that void.
0: Mm, That's a really fascinating kind of resonating with it. I'd be curious that do you have any stories to exemplify this kind of someone operating in the void and and somehow shifting to embodying and and living that more?
1: Share my story. So I was, I was one of those guys who, you know, I was a college professor. I worked on wall street, had a great resume you know, I invested in my resume. I didn't invest in my personal life. And I sought out sex and drugs as my way of creating intimacy. I had this void, you know, uh, you know I think uh, I'll speak for myself as a gay man. When society tells you that you're wrong, that you're, that you're bad, that you're going to hell, you know, it kind of messes with your psyche. <laughs> and so regardless, you know, and I, you know, I, I grew up in the, in, in the, in the 80s. It's a very different time. And so for me, it was, you know, I I I had a deep void in me. I didn't know how to love myself. And so I sought it out in and through mostly sex, but then also drugs later on. It wasn't until I started um, being surrounded by people who, who cared for me, who loved me, who saw me and accepted me for who I was, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And once it was described to me as, let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. right? So I think the first thing that I noticed that, that helped me was when I could start to have the comfort and the confidence to walk into my the parts of myself that where I had shame, the parts of myself that I didn't want people to see, that I was really hiding. when I could lean into that and then, you know, you know, inching slowly, step by step, But like taking a step, putting it out there, being exposed, but then being accepted, not rejected or judged. I think that was probably one of the most, that was one of the the turning points. And then I think to be be able to be seen by others for who people saw who I really was versus what I thought I was. And so if I thought I was a piece of shit, but they were seeing like the good, you know, it's starting to shift the narrative, Mm. you know? Then I think it was, you know, I've done a lot of personal growth work, both through the companies I've worked with. And I, I you know, I think it was looking at shadow work. What what do I not see in myself that others can see? Or that comes out when I project my stuff onto others. And I'm like, oh, if it's activating me and maybe something with me more so than it's about them. Mm. And then, you know, looking at my limiting beliefs. What are the beliefs I have of myself that limit my potential, limit my possibility, limit my reality? You know, and how can I transform those from limitation to affirmation? So that can be another way of tapping into self-care and self-love. And then the, the final thing is to get real with my own story. And, and one of the things that we would, we would do at the company I used to work for is we would also have, have folks look at their own unmet needs. And in the unmet needs, what did I not get as a child but still unresolved that as an adult, when I don't get that, these are my reactions? And those, those, those needs, though, are really the core basic fundamental needs that we all need, that we all have as humans. I was in a group, and, and 38 people were in this group, and we did an exercise around unmet needs. And in that exercise, those 38 people came down to what is, the, what is the core need you need most in your life? And it came down to to be loved, to be seen, to be heard, to be valued, to belong. One of probably those five, maybe seven, were going around the room for those 38 people. And I think when we're able to see that we all have these core, basic, fundamental needs, you can start to see each person in their humanity, beyond their identity, beyond their levels, beyond their layers, behind the, beyond their class. And then we can start to see the humanity in ourselves and the humanity in them.
0: Mm. So I'm really curious, the story you told, there was like a pivotal point there where you found community. And it sounded like you were also starting to do some internal reflection too, but it seemed like there was a pivotal moment where this community, these people were kind of speaking to you or you were connecting with them and that was kind of helping you on your journey. And I'm curious, what was markedly different from that group versus like what was happening with like youth quest and the group that you had created there? Cause, cause on the surface as, as a bystander, it sounds like, wow, if you created this community, that community would give back in a similar way. And so I'm curious, what was different in your experience between those two?
1: Um, <laughs> I was 16 years old versus I was in my late thirties.
0: <laughs> mm, got it. So you left that
1: community. Uh, I, I went off to college. So I started it and then I went off to college and then other people kept it going for the 30 something years. So it was really just this idea of just putting this together, you know, going into an environment that is totally accepting, totally authentic, just culturally different. I um, mean, this was in a workplace, place right? So it's like going into a corporate culture where they really do walk the talk that you can bring your full self to work, which I don't think a lot of organizations actually do provide that. Even though we talk about human-centered workplace design, to really create that culture where you allow for total acceptance to bring your authentic self, that requires a lot of rewiring on the systems and the organization and the culture itself. And shift of mindset to go to that place of acceptance and I had gone to this organization and within it had that experience that there was just care, nurturing and love permeating the entire corporate culture. And those are really in a sense, part of the value system and the ethos. Mm. You know, I think when you, when you look at an organization and the organizational culture is steeped in love, you're going to feel it. It's going to give you a very different perspective Then if it's just based on numbers, it's based on outcomes and measures and it's based on performance alone.
0: Wow. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's painting a really vivid picture now. You know, it's like this, like go to college, you know, like there's a lot of shifts and transition and a lot of things happening. And I'm sure going to companies that are not anywhere near the values of the company you're describing that could lead to a deep, dark hole even though you started from a place of having community where you even fostered and grew the community. So I think about the individuals that didn't even have that foundation, like how, how deep and far and dark it could get.
1: You know, one thing though, I just want to, I'll call it on myself. And then also what I see in a lot of men, like I said, we weren't, you know, many of us weren't socialized to socialize in healthy ways. We're often, we're often so living in our own narrative and, and our own conditioning that we don't even realize how much we're missing. Mm. So I didn't know what I didn't know. I think a lot of us don't know what we don't know. So I don't, I don't really talk about these things like toxic masculinity. I don't talk about, you know, what's healthy, what's unhealthy. Because I don't think that's helpful. You know? I think this isn't a judgment of good, bad, right, wrong, you're broken or you're not question I always ask is, what's been the cost of the way you've been living? What have you been missing out on? And what are you yearning for? I tend to speak to what is it that you've been missing out on and where's your yearning? Where's the yearning in the type of relationships you want? Where's the yearning in the type of sense of community and belonging that you want to have with others? What's the yearning for the way you're loved and and, and, are, and can love and to the ways you can be seen and heard and experienced? Like that, that to me is really the the bigger questions. And, 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 you know, my, in my second master's degree, I studied existential psychotherapy as my orientation. And I really kind of break it down to when we're looking at all of this work, when we're trying to find our truth. It really comes down to these four questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I here to do? And how do I love? If we brought a lot of these narratives down, like, down to those questions. I think we'd have a very different conversation and exploration. I think a lot of what's out there right now, we're trying to change the system, but we're intellectualizing it and we're keeping it in a head-based conversation. I think getting to the heart of these questions can move us into the heart, move us into, the, into our intuition, and move us into the truth of who we are at our core, at the core sense of our being.
0: Mm, it reminds me of when companies try to create mission and vision statements and they're just kind of like rubber stamping stuff that just sounds like any other statement from someone else. It's like, you know, it's ridiculous when companies do it, it's ludicrous if we're going to do it to ourselves, right? Like we're, we should hold ourselves a little more accountable. And it comes back to a point you made around, you know, Companies talking about wanting to be accepting, and but you rarely see them actually being able to be successful there. I'm curious what you see as the most common pitfalls, or or even what are ways that companies could strive to do better.
1: I think we're focusing too much on behavior change. We're not focusing enough on heart transformation.
0: Mm. And so, what does that heart transformation look like versus behavior?
1: Shifting, shifting the heart. Well, oh, heart—the heart, the, heart, oh, of the course, heart, yes, heart yes. transformation, the, the heart shifting work, right? So, I think um, when we're trying to change behaviors, we're really still staying in the head. It's basically, you know, cognitive behavior. Like, what, what, what's the awareness that I need to have for the behaviors that you want to see me perform? What do you want me to say? What do you not want me to say? I'll do what you want, so I don't lose my job and I can get promoted. That's the cynical side of me. There's a lot of good work that's out there, but flip side, if you're asking me what I see as the pitfall, I think it's, it's falling into that trap. Mm. I think the work I do around compassion, compassionate masculinity, some of my work is, is doing work with cops and military on how to deepen compassion in this work around compassionate masculinity as a way to open the heart and, and have a different intentionality you know, and to heal the wounds of the trauma that's created by the job itself. Wow, yeah. If if you take a step back, the heart-shifting work, really, I think, it's about understanding our own story. It's about feeling our feelings of our stories. It's about getting uncomfortable. I think that's where we get in trouble. We try to, if I were to say the thing I see the most, and and I'll use my own example, a lot of times people will tell me, you know, Sean, if you want to reach men, you gotta to talk to them like this. Meet them where they are. My sense is when we do that, we're just perpetuating the problem because we're watering down what we're trying to do to sell it to someone. And, and we are we are we are not keeping the integrity of the teeth of the work and what we need to talk about, right? And so I think if we had more courage to really call things what they were, and also when we're saying we're going to talk to men, like one, I think we do a couple of things. One, we we lump all men together as one. We can't, you have to talk to men like this. In my experience, men come in many shapes, form, sizes, you know, like um, colors, energies, um, and different experiences. So we can't all be lumped into one. Second, what we're often being said is just speak to men and to, the, to their heads and simplify it. And so I say, okay, well, two, I think we're underestimating the capability and capacity of men. But three, and it goes back to what I, where I started in terms of my own transformation. For men, you know, it's one thing to be talked to by another man from the head. Something completely different to be talked to by another man from the heart. And when I can talk from my heart to another man's heart and his heart can receive it, his mind may not understand what the hell is going on, but he'll still be gravitating because it's like, wow, I'm not used to this. Where there's no intention, there's no agenda, and I don't want to change you, and I have acceptance for who you are, and I have a genuine love and compassion for who you are, and I want to see you succeed, and I want to see you excel. And I want to also be there to support you in the pain and suffering that you have as a human, as a man, and someone going through the struggles of life. You know, I think when we can bring that energy in both from one man to another and in a community of men, when I was loved by a community, that was by women. You know, mm. a community of women were offering that love. I said, you know, we often as men go to women for, for care and nurturing. But if we can receive that from other men, and the reality is that doesn't that doesn't weaken us, that doesn't that doesn't make us more feminine. It actually is strengthening us in our compassion, in, in and both in our compassion and our masculinity, and what it means to be a man to really be caring and nurturing to others. It's not a softening.
0: Every man that I know that participates in any kind of men's group or ritual cadence-based men's activity, whether it's yearly or what have you, they always come back refreshed, renewed, and it's like they're a new person, right? It's like a prescription. So I want to talk a little bit about the work you're doing with the labs and the various rapid retreats and things, because I find it really fascinating, and especially as it relates to individual work and I guess I'll just make it a huge wide open question and also throw in the, how much of your work is informed by, you know, this community of women that, that you found that created so much change for you. Are you sort of recreating a little microcosm of that same little community to give people an opportunity to start experiencing some of that?
1: You know, I often when I talk to men and men's work, you know, from whatever community they're in, I'm like, you know, I did my men's work through the feminine in you know, the company where I was. I was I became the head of personal transformation and well being. In doing that, I, I was, and I have experienced men's work as well, where there's more of a masculine approach into it. And what I noticed when actually in the company is I would talk to men who were being transformed through the feminine, and these are all straight men who were, you know, married, kids, working in, in departments like IT, distribution finance, and some of the creative areas. But they would, you know, they would tell me, like, yeah, you know, um, I would say, hey, you know, I feel like I'm changing. Are you changing, are you noticing anything? And I'd say, yeah, you know, my wife noticed that I'm, I listen differently, I'm more patient, I'm more patient with nuance. You know, I can be in a conversation We can really go into the granular level of the gray. I stopped needing to be right all the time. I started to be more curious. Started to have more access to my emotions and I could read her emotions. Uh, And I started to be more creative, and I started to solve problems differently. I said, you know, but what men realize is they weren't really doing anything. (laughs) They were just, like, being in this culture, and that culture of acceptance and that culture of the feminine was just, like, helping them see things, experience things, and and have a different way of being. And I think in reality, I, I bring that perspective when I think about what the ways to work with men, you know? My sense is we start in... For many of us, we start in the wounded masculine. You know, We start in our own wounding. We start to tap into, in this work, into the feminine, but it can still be in the, in the wounded feminine. But we heal through the feminine to strengthen us back into the masculine. I think one of the challenges is that in the world today, there's the, the masculine and masculinity has become so you know, polarizing and demonized that a lot of men, when they start doing the work, shy away from the masculine. I think the reality is we need both the masculine and the feminine and the way I describe it. And I, I'm talking to not just from the conditioning, from the constructs of masculinity and femininity. I'm talking about the energy within us that we all have these energies. You could call it the masculine feminine. You could call it, you could call it the head and the heart. You could call it the active receptive, You call it the yin and the yang. It doesn't matter what you call it. The reality is you can look at yourself as you operate on these two poles your energy. Because of the ways we've been conditioned as men, there's usually an imbalance. From that imbalance, the question is, if I'm strong, if I have more of my masculine energy, you know, to a lower feminine energy, what's the cost? If I'm higher in my, in my feminine energy and lower masculine, what's the cost? And then what happens when I'm more balanced in my masculine and feminine? The way I describe it is, you're really then just getting a greater agility in the ways you respond to what's thrown at you by the world. You know, what life throws at you, you're able to do more of the dance and have more access to more of yourself in dealing with the challenges that you're going to experience in life and to have a more fulfilling life.
0: It's interesting. It, it kind of reminds me of being stuck in one gear versus being able to change gears. Totally. You know, yeah. yeah totally. Much more resilient. So, which brings me to another kind of curiosity, which is, what would you say is possible through this work? You know, when we peer out into the future, you're doing more of this work, other people are doing it, and it's like amplified and amplified. And what does the world look like? How do things change?
1: Well, I think first, the word that comes to mind is liberation. You know, when we're we're not telling men to change because they're broken, they're weak, or there's something wrong. But we're really saying, you know what? If you want to come into your best self, there are certain things that have been happening in your, most likely in your conditioning that's constricting you and and holding you back and keeping you hostage from your real self. I think this work is about liberating men to come into the fullness of who they are, and then from that place, being able to discover who they are, discover their truth, learn to love differently, learn to tap in unearth and tap into their inherent gifts that maybe they didn't know they had and to start to realize how they're meant to truly contribute in the world it's one thing to do your purpose work not connected to personal growth right because you'll probably find your life purpose you might find your job purpose you know i'm, all, I'm also an interfaith minister i think there's also how do you find and connecting with your soul purpose what is it that you're actually meant to do in this lifetime that has nothing to do most likely with your job. You know, how are you meant to contribute? I think when more men can discover that, um, that's going to create a new possibility. I think if we move from, you know, for many of us in many of our systems, they're based on fear-based control. If we can move to love-based liberation and empowerment, we can redesign organizations and institutions in a very different way. I think if men are doing this work on themselves and they're doing it in the company of men through an intersectional lens. So we're crossing the the lines in these groups around sexuality, around race, around religion, around ability, around ethnicity, around our our masculine-feminine expression, whatever it may be, then we're preparing ourselves for the conversations then that we can have with women and those beyond the binary. And we can actually do gender bridge building in a very different way. Not gender bridge building solely for the the sake of equity, because that's one conversation. But from the perspective of... Being able to really blend the best of what we have from our full humanity, create a different type of relationship, you know, tear down the walls that, and, and, and the ways that we harm each other and create a different type of healing across gender. I think that's going to help us innovate differently. I think it's going to help us solve problems differently. And helped, I think it's going to help us as, as systems are crumbling all around us. We're gonna be able to come together across the gender continuum, across our humanity, and be able to start to reimagine these systems that are crumbling from a place of deeper consciousness and collective wisdom. They're gonna shift the power dynamics in a very radical way and are gonna be able to raise up and, and give access to all voices and raise up all voices.
0: The word that's been coming up for me multiple times in this conversation is relating, you know, whether it's the work around intimacy or just the kind of understanding the shadow impacts, all of it seems to be directly corresponding to our abilities to relate to others and how others relate to us. And sure, there's this internal conversation and how we might think about our purpose in the world, but that's also how we relate to our fellow man and how we can help be a good contributor to society, et cetera. And so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on how you've seen your work how it's played out with your clients and people you worked with and just the relationships and how people shifted the way they relate to each other with inside of organizations after you've worked with them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, like my work, when I, when I was working on the book and I started noticing that this is the work, the ways we relate, the ways we're in relationship and what gets in our way of being able to relate, what gets in our way of, the ways we constrict ourselves and the ways we hide and the ways we, we, we avoid um, discomfort and vulnerability in relationship. Right? So that's why I, I started something called Men Men Navigating Relationships to bring a space for men to be able to have any and all types of conversations on any and all things, relationships from isolation to friendship to romance to sex to um, work relationships to family relationships to the ways we lead. It's all relationship. I was an organizational behavior professor at uh, Cornell and NYU and Borough College in New York. So I pretty much had 10 years of teaching people how to relate as as part of the mix of, of the things I've done in my life. And I think it does come down to that. I think it does come down to the ways we relate. What I've seen is, in the work I've done, people showing up in an authentic way. People relating in an authentic way and creating authentic connection people sharing openly and having the hard conversations, leaning into the discomfort of those conversations and having the courage to be able to say what needs to be said and, and, and be supportive and be a companion with each other so people can feel that they have been heard and seen in the conversations and that people can, have learned how to listen deeply for each other as a gift. Versus listening to understand, listening to respond, but really um, Mm. having that intentionality of listening to both receive and understand. And to get curious with each other.
0: That's an important tenet in facilitation, for sure. You know, listening to understand versus listening to respond. I want to end here with giving you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought.
1: You know, I I would say to, to think about what holds you back from doing this work, right? It can be the fear of opening Pandora's box. It can be the fear of what are those emotions that are within me? If I let them go, will I be able to stop? Will this make me less of a man if I do this work? Whatever that tape is, you know, I think there's three things that I would say. One, don't do this work alone. Do it in community. Do it with community, with, with people that you trust, and who are going to be an anchor and a guide for you. And who are going to mirror back for you who you are so you can see yourself through their eyes, not through your own perceptions. Second, get curious. Look at this as an adventure where you can play, you can experiment, you can fail, and you can learn. But also realize that, yeah, there's going to be discomfort. But the flip side of the discomfort is the liberation that's going to come from it on the other side. And the last thing I think that's so critical is be willing to surrender control. Let go let go of the ego, relax the ego and allow yourself to go into the not knowing and sit and sit in the discomfort of the gray, but realize that you're still not going to fall through the cracks, even if you do.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. I think those are great thoughts for folks and encourage everyone to check out your programs and the work you're doing. And the book will be out here sometime soon. Excited to see that and check it out. And yeah. We'll have some resources and links to your stuff in the show notes where folks can find you, and it's been a pleasure chatting. So thanks for joining, and I hope we can talk again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com